This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Cliff Eidelman, composer for Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I'm Ken Tripp. I'm Haley Stoddart. And I am Zach Moore. And today, we're going to discuss the differences and enhancements between the Star Trek motion picture, theatrical cut, and director's edition, which came out over 20 years after the original movie. Or is that Star Trek Evolution, Ken? I, I forget what the title of the first Star Trek film is. Yeah, I thought didn't didn't they buy off on when we renamed it about two weeks ago? I mean, I think I might have forgotten to submit that paperwork, uh, but but I, I will I will get on that immediately. Haley, Haley, listen, if yep. if you're going to manage us and you're going to allow that kind of sloppy ass work, I need you to address it right now. Okay, <laughs> I I, I'm, I apologize. Uh, you know, so I'm my bad. I'm sorry. Uh, it's hard to keep up with you two sometimes. So. You're kind wait of a minute, wait a minute. You're apologizing late. for Zach's... Po- Come on. I like it. Is that still punishable by death in the Federation, isn't it? Well, uh, no, I think we have to go to Talos 4. That's the only way we can get executed. That's the only one left. Yes. The only death penalty left. Okay. Or maybe we just never talk about it again. I think that's the best policy. That's what I found in Starfleet missions. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never speak of any of this again. I have no idea what you're talking about. I know, I know. Let's let's <laughs> let's just remain everybody's favorite, Haley. Why do you think Zach and I are jealous of you? I've got I've got seventeen followers. I don't know how much Zach has. You have like one million two hundred thousand, <laughs> some crazy number. No. So. <laughs> it's not uh, that high. it's something like that. It's something like that. Yeah, so there is a lot of buzz out there being the fortieth anniversary of the motion picture and we got this possibility of an HD 4K, which I don't even know what that is, uh, upgrade to the director's cut. And uh, what are your guys' thoughts on this? I saw the news and I was like, well, that's pretty cool. Uh, I don't have 4K anything, so <laughs> I have no objections or opinions really much on it other than it would be pretty cool. Well, I think the most important thing about this news is... 4K aside, which I work in production, and I think 4K is great for production, like behind the, when you're when you're, you're filming something, editing something, 
4K is great because it gives you so much so much options in post. But usually for deliverables, exports, final versions, delivering in 1080, which is, you know, quote unquote HD. I think for the human eye, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I think 4K, 8K now in consumer world, it's just too much. So so I, I'm going to be very slow to adopt 4K in my consumer world because it's like, when am I getting a new TV? I'm going to have 4K player. Like, I'm just now getting settled into having a full Blu-ray HD collection. But be that as it may, the important thing here for the director's edition is it is stuck in standard definition. It was made for DVD in the early 2000s and mastered in standard definition. So we can't get it on Blu-ray. We can't even get it in HD. It's stuck in standard definition, and that is a crime. <laughs> so for the news that they're discussing remastering it for 4K, it's great because that means we'll get it in Blu-ray as well. So it can finally bring it into the to the HD world. And they and the, the, the slowdown for that is they have to upgrade all the special effects. Everything they did in, in 99 to 2001, because it took them a while to, to upgrade this film. They, they spent a lot of attention to detail and everything. Everything it did, it's, it's, it's stuck in the past. And this news about an upgrade is very exciting. Uh, regardless of what version of the film you prefer, I'm just happy that potentially now we could have the director's edition of motion picture in HD, much like we have the director's cut of Wrath of Khan in HD. We have that in HD and in 4K. So everybody loves Wrath of Khan. We all love Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan's great. But there are five other original series Star Trek movies out there. I would like to get the same attention. I feel you there. I I only finally got a Blu-ray player like a couple years ago and have started getting films on Blu-ray. So I'm so far behind on the technical bus. Well, I think it's I think it's about time that they they gave the motion picture the director's cut uh, a a good release on on HD. It's funny, you know, as um, I, I've I've watched the director's cut much more often and much more recently. So going back to just the theatrical version, which I watched before this podcast, what's interesting to me is just how much faster the front end goes in the original cut of the motion picture and how much better a lot of things are in the original theatrical release than I remembered. So it's funny. I kind of fell in love with the director's cut. There's a lot of great things about it. But when I go back to the original without all the TV edition, all the added bonus features and all that stuff, the movie really moves, especially through the front house, and then comes to a crawl. And um, like I said, it, it didn't, it, it, uh, it, and it changed a lot of stuff, um, I thought, very cleverly in the director's cut. Paramount, in a very unique thing, too, I think, um, allowed Robert Wise to kind of cut the movie the way he wanted it to. So to give you both some history, which I think you probably know because you're Trekkies, is that he really didn't have a lot of time from... The release date of 7, 7 December 1979 uh, to when the, the film was finished because of all the things they were trying to do to get all the special effects done. And there was a whole litany of things that went wrong. And they literally delivered the film to uh, Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian for this big, big, big premiere. Literally it was still wet, still hadn't dried. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of comments out there that, um, you know, I get it, the motionless picture. It was it was really drawn out. They wanted to get all the special effects in there, and Robert Wise felt he never really got to cut the movie the way he wanted to, and so they allowed him to do that in 2001. So that's when that came out. It was a really big deal. But Haley, you never, you've never seen the director's cut. So what are some of the things that, after you've seen the movie, 
what would be some of the things that, that you would have liked to have seen done differently about Star Trek The Motion Picture? I honestly, I enjoy it as it is. So yes, I've never seen the director's cut edition, so I don't know what I'm missing, but obviously I can't miss it if I don't know that it's not there. You know, I like it. I think there's things that are too much for me that would have been like, okay, if that was a little bit shorter of a sequence, that would have been fine. I don't know. I wanted more Scotty and Bones. I love Bones in this one. So More Scotty, more Bones. Yeah. Okay. And then the rest is sort of pacing. Yeah, a little bit. When you talk about scenes, I mean, are you talking about when they're just going through V'ger and just the, everyone looking at the screen? Is that what you're talking about? That part actually is really kind of interesting because it intrigues me as to how this probe that we've sent out turns out like this. But Spoilers. <laughs> no, there's just some other, just a lot of standing around on the bridge. <laughs> I'm like, really? We could uh, tighten that up a little bit. Well, I mean, it's interesting you, you, you say that because that's a huge part of what the director's edition does. It just, it, it's, it tightens up mm-hmm. a lot of the movie because uh, the slow motion picture, the motionless picture, the, those those jokes came about because there's just scenes that just go on and on and on. And um, George Lucas in, in the 80s, he used to say that you know, a lot of big budget science fiction films get preoccupied with these worlds they build and these special effects. And they spend so much time showing off this amazing work um, that they lose track of, like, the story. So, like, you know, in the Star Wars movies, everything's very fast-paced. You know, they, they build these intricate sets and all that, but you just blow by them because the special effects are tools to tell the story. And without saying it, I think what specifically what he's referring to, I mean, that's the first thing that came to my mind, was Star Trek The Motion Picture because you had all this, you know, amazing-looking stuff, but you don't need to spend forever on it. And I think that's what really, to me anyway... Uh, a bit, and we'll talk about the kind of changes they make here. But one of the the big pluses of the director's edition is, especially when the when the Enterprise is just going through V'ger, it's just going around and along and along, and the special effects look great and the music is great, but the pacing really throws things off. Uh, interesting. I was listening to a um, a biography on George Lucas on my long ride home from New Hampshire this weekend, and it was fascinating because what they what they hit upon was. That uh, what you said is true, but he was referring more into uh, 2001, and um, this comment goes back, I think, you're right, 80s, late 70s, somewhere. But what was really fascinating is it was his 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 ex-wife at the time, who was an editor, who, um, who changed a lot of the pacing in Star Wars because she felt it was too plotting. Mm. So she had a lot to do with, with, you're exactly right, getting that pace and, and having that objective eye. And I think that that's what happened was... They spent all these money on these effects. We got to show them versus giving the director a chance to really edit it down so that it would it would be more compressed. And that that was the issue there. But amazingly, when they um, put the the movie out for the television release and then even the VHS, what did they do? They made it 14 minutes longer. <laughs> the, the special longer version. And, that, see, and yes. that's the one that I had, my family had on videotape when I was a kid. Sure. And so I never saw the theatrical version until I got the Blu-rays. Because with the one you see on TV, the one you see on home video, you know, I mean, that's the special longer version. So there's really three versions of the motion picture uh, that have there been commercially is. released. There are. That's right. And... I think that what I think is ironic about the director's cut um, and the home version, because they've used elements of, of that, 
as well as their own new CGI effects, is they lengthen the front end of the movie. And so it takes longer for like the Enterprise to get going with all these different things that they added um, and put in there. And then, you know, uh, the place where they needed to cut, they did. But net-net, they really, timing-wise, they really didn't change much as far as speed. And some of the pacing is actually off um, on the front end. So it's, it's kind of funny. They, they, they kind of um, worked it so that the front end goes longer, the, sh the, the second half goes a little bit shorter, but we can talk about whether or not the value add in the front end was worth it or not. What was what were some of the things, Zach, in your opinion, that um, they upgraded well uh, in the director's cut versus the original motion picture? Well, I think just opening up the world was great, uh, just aesthetically, because there's a lot of you know limitations of 1978-1979 special effects that kind of constricted the world of the motion picture, and I'm thinking of things like Starfleet headquarters. Kirk shows up. He goes into the shuttle port there, and it and that monorail that he kind of lands on is next to the giant wall. And instead of the giant wall, the map painting, it's in a great map painting, right? Uh, but they open up this building, and they make a whole other second level of shuttlecraft up there. They actually, Darren Dockerman, who was in charge of the special effects there, a lot of attention to detail. He put a Galileo-style, original series-style shuttlecraft on the top there as a little Easter egg taking off. Things like that, things like Kirk looking at the Enterprise for the first time, you see a reflection of the Enterprise in dry dock in his in his uh, the glass of the shuttle pod. Him and Scotty are in J just little little touches that you don't think about, but when you see them add, you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like when they're in the observation lounge with Kirk, McCoy, and, and Spock, and you see the nacelle in the background. You know, just little little touches that enrich everything that you're seeing, and I think it goes a long way to just being really cool and little attention to detail that unfortunately they rushed through and weren't able to get. And I think a, a really important thing is, as we talk here is all of these changes were initially intended by Robert Wise. When they, they went back to the original storyboards from the seventies and said, Oh, they, this is what this scene was supposed to look like. This is what this scene was supposed to look like. They're not, they're not just making like, Hey, what would be cool to do 20 years later? That's just making it up on the fly. They're going back to the originally intended versions of all these scenes and sets and making them happening and bringing them to life with technology 20 years later when they had the time and the money to do it. Yeah. There was a lot of things that, that they added. Um, you got to see V'ger. Oh, yeah, the, right? the ship of V'ger, absolutely. I actually got to see the whole ship uh, once it... Uh, so, you know, Haley, in the version you saw, it's it, the cloud disappears and they show it dissipating, but you see it point of view shot from the top of V'ger looking out over its bow. In in this one, they, they actually step back and they show you the ship. And it was okay. I mean, it wasn't... It, it was... For the sta for the for the for the standards computers and all that stuff, it, it was it was kind of cool to actually see what the what the thing looked like. Although now it's like that could be upgraded now if <laughs> it can be done even a little bit better. Well, well, in in the theatrical movie, like Haley, did you ever realize that V'ger was like there was a ship in there, or did you think it was just the cloud? So I knew that there was a ship in there. There's just this cloud around it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize there was a a, a ship in there. Until the director's edition, I'm like, oh, there's actually supposed to be like a, a structure inside of Egypt. Because I thought it was just like a cloud with like these walls and it, you know, like you're passing through like a big cell or something. And there's like these walls mm -hmm. in there. And I didn't really realize there was supposed to be like a like a physical like ship in there. And, and it was really cool. The design that they came up with, which, which again was an 
a design from the 70s. It's in the storyboards. They pulled them out and they they realized that and with 1990s 2000s technology and the only the only hint you get of the shape of the ship is when you have that that schematic of like the tactical schematic of all the like, devices that V'ger like uh puts over the earth. In the center there you see like the bleeping V'ger and it has like this has these points coming out from the center like a like a hexagon with points on it. And I always thought that was just like oh that's that's a target that the tactical system has and that's kind of vaguely what the ship looks like if you looked at it from head on so that's just a little cool touch that i just hadn't really realized which is really brought to the fore obviously and the director's addition you don't see many shots of it but you see a few and it goes a long way it's kind of i think it's hard not to miss that there's a ship in there i mean spock is like you know, he's been hearing the sound, which is really interesting because I, I love the sound effects in this film. And I being a band nerd, I can picture what instrument, what things they used outside of instruments to make the different sounds. It's kind of fun. I love all the different things. Like I said, I can tell that they used springs and um, we never had one when I was in band, but I know of it. And like the metal sheet. Um, and you make the wave in it to make a sound and stuff like that. So I really, that's one of the aspects of the film that I really enjoy is, is the sounds and the music of the film. Haley, you hit on something that really bothered me about the director's cut. And that was the sound. Okay. So the, the, the score is the same, but they change all the sound effects within the ship. And I thought the original motion picture, you know, when they go to Red Alert and you have that klaxon and you have that voice and you have all the things in the background, um, all the things that made the motion picture make that ship seem really functional, they kind of did away with in a way. And it, and it, it actually took it, it took me out of it a bit. So I'll give you an example. Right? When, um, when they fly around the ship and they land, you know, I'm, a, I'm an attention to detail geek when it comes to this stuff on a ship. And they land, you know, on in the um, in the port side uh, uh, shuttle pod, whatever you call that thing. Um, in the background, you hear the klaxon saying "travel vault available," at, you know, po- at, at station six or whatever they're saying. But it's this subtle, and it's in the background. It's in a computer voice, and you see as they get off that shuttle number six on the top, right? So the, it's it's almost like you know anybody who needs to get off the ship can get on this travel pod. And when they go to red alert, they say red alert or if they're, you know, emergency alert and, and and the klaxons and all of that sound sounded so sophisticated and so cool um, when when there was something. And it went back to kind of like the the shrieking siren noise. Um, They added bridge noise when there wasn't any in the in the motion picture, you know, um, all of those things, which I loved about the motion picture. And I was like, oh, they went too far. They took. They took a lot of the um, the functionality out with the sound effects and added kind of old school TV show type sound to it, and um, I didn't like it. So it was it was that was one of the things that that really bothered me about the director's cut. And it's a small thing, but uh, I thought it was one of the the sound of that movie, the sound of the motion picture. I think was was one of its key attributes, and I don't think they needed to change it. So that that's one of the things I did not like. That's really interesting because I agree with you. I, I enjoy the sound. And, and so, yeah, that would kind of make it not as enjoyable if, if they're changing the sounds. I don't see a reason to do that. Yeah, that is a common thing when they remaster films, and it's really annoying. Director's Edition is a, is a very different uh, cut. Like, there's a lot of deeper things going on. 
between the theatrical and the director edition. But even when they they remaster films like Superman the movie or or Batman the the Batman movies from the nineties as of this recording just recently came out in four K and they redid the entire sound design. And it's really annoying because, like, especially when you grow up watching these movies and you know how every gunshot sounds or, you know, how every explosion right. sounds. Terminator movies were actually the same, but the original Terminator movie, uh, some of them are done because uh, they were mixed at, at a lower level of audio. Like, uh, it's mixed in Dolby 2.0. And nowadays, they're like, we got to upgrade it to Dolby 7.1, which I will never have a sound system I don't think capable of that in my house. So I'm always going to listen to it on the, the more basic level. So it changes everything because they they mix they they mix in new sounds, new layers of audio, and yeah, from an objective third party, if you, if you have no connection to any of this, and you're like, oh, well, I'm gonna make this sound better. I guess scientifically it might sound better, but it's different, and it's not the movie you grew up with watching, and so it really bothers you. Like like a big thing, you know, I mentioned Superman the movie when they remastered Superman the movie for for actually just DVD. Mm-hmm. When you hear the John Williams music, it's great in the opening credits, right? But then when the credits come in, this is whoosh of the credits, the opening credits. It's really amazing opening credits sequence. And that gets toned down in the remastered audio. So you just, it's like a, like kind of the background. It's, 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 it's barely audible. And that's so much of the experience of the powerful opening credits. So, so absolutely, I hear what you're saying there, Ken, about the audio design. Uh, I guess I never really noticed it. I don't know how different. The director's edition is from the uh, special longer version, I guess, because because that's the one I was always comparing it to audio wise. But if I had to to wager another guess of why they might have changed thing, it's maybe to kind of bring it more in line with other Star Trek movies with like the sound effects, because like the voice was like no one at the navigator station, no one at the navigator station. Like that was a little uh, like uh, abrasive and something that 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 never happened. So stop. it. Okay. (laughs) Just just stop it. Okay. When the Enterprise is being pulled in by a tractor beam, it goes off, and it says "emergency alert, negative control at home." Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's perfectly normal. If the ship is being pulled, it's it's telling you, you know, what what the issue is. Uh, even when the ship is under attack, I thought it was really cool when it went, you know, emergency alert, uh, uh, incoming fire, zero mark zero. I mean, it's alerting the ship to what's happening. Now, if you've ever flown in a plane and you're close to the cockpit, that is exactly what happens. You'll hear beep, you know, 1,500 feet, beep, 1,000 feet, you know, warning, warning, altitude, altitude. You hear these things, right? They're audible alarms that go with um, the technology. And and for Star Trek, that was ahead of its time. So to pull it all is almost like uh, that. That's it made it, again, very functional, very real because... um, you get as many audible indicators when there's a problem, even in today's cars, uh, more so than things beeping and you know and, and so forth. So that's why I was like, well, why did you why did you take that out? Because even um, when they were doing tests and things, it was just all in the background, and it was just really cool. You know, um, you know, engineering to all decks, emergency power tests in five minutes, mark, and then you hear it in the background, three minutes, two minutes. And, it, you know, it, I'm just saying it's just like it's it's part of the infrastructure that they built that made this a real thematic, big time, big league movie. And one of the things that happened, as we know, after the motion picture is the rest of the movies were essentially elongated TV shows with, you know, a slightly better special effects, which I love, by the way. But it wasn't it, it was it just they, they never got there again until Star Trek 09. So 
I like the visual world building, but unfortunately, it seems to me that, <laughs> on the other hand, they did a lot of um, destruction of the world building on the audio side when they made this director's edition, and that that is unfortunate. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what they did with the video offsets it, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying it's not perfect, right? It, it, it tells the story better in the director's cut. Uh, you see more in the director's cut. But they did do some things that, that changed the film. Um, and for the most part, for the better. If I sort of say aggregate, it's, I think if, you know, if you're not a Star I, I always looked at the motion picture and realized that if you weren't a Star Trek fan, you were going to have a hard time liking that movie. If you were, you know, if, if you weren't a person who was in the Navy or a pilot or something who loves functionality and seeing how things work, you were going to have a hard time liking that movie. The director's cut makes it a lot easier for people to enjoy the film. It gives you um, a better grasp of things. It scales things differently. So how big was V'ger in the original movie? Oh, it was, uh, what, 82 AUs? Yeah, 82 right. AUs, yeah. 82 AUs. That's crazy big, yeah. right? So one AU is, what, 93 million miles? Yeah, and, so, and they changed it to two AUs because 82 two. is way... 82 would, like, encompass many solar systems or something absurd yeah. like that. And that's the cloud, right? Might be bigger than our solar system, you know, but they're talking about the space of the cloud being 82 AUs. And, you know, my God. So that that is big, but it's... But yeah, they, they shrink it to two, which is still enormous. You know, 186 million miles in diameter. That's well, that's a lot of cloud. Well, I, so, but I, I like that change because I think it's a lot yeah, more me too. wrapping your head around it and a lot more to scale from what we see. Uh, I, you know, speaking of the audio, another change I did like audio wise from the, the theatrical to the director's edition is the, the Klingon at the beginning when they're when they're watching the playback. Like they had that weird kind of computerized mm -hmm. voice translation. I like how they removed that for the director's edition. Were you were you attached to that as well, Ken? Or what do you think of that? Yeah, change? I was attached to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I liked it because what it was doing was, you know, um it was interpreting as it as as the Klingon was speaking and I thought that was kind of cool. They're intercepting the signal and it's it's deciphering what he's saying. That makes sense too. I I can see why it would be more of like a mechanical rather than just like a person saying it so i have a question so with the with the director's cut compared to the theatrical release um when we are on vulcan with spock how much of a change is that outside of like the moons and it being daylight or nighttime kind of stuff because as i i've said and some people clearly don't know um they filmed that in mammoth hot springs which is one of my favorite spots inside Yellowstone National Park. So, like, for me, every time I watch that particular spot, I'm like, yes, it's so cool because that was always my favorite spot in the park. Yeah, they, they, they cut it back. A, yeah, they, they do cut it back a bit, Haley. Uh, they, they added a CGI Spock who climbs a set of stairs. The temple looks different. Uh, when they show him and they're looking back down at him, it's the same scenes you know. Uh, you know, but you don't you don't quite see what you did uh, in the motion picture. It's it's still it, as much as it detracts from one of your favorite spots. Uh, what they did with that scene was better. It was also a little bit longer in the director's cut, I believe. So you prefer that change, Ken, the change of Vulcan? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was really cool because there were a lot of statues and there was actually more statues. Spock was underneath, you know, like they were they were essentially, which was kind of odd, framed in between the feet yeah. of a big Vulcan, <laughs> yes, right? In yes. the motion picture. <laughs> yeah. And and this, that's that's really not the case. And they have more def- you can really see that you can see the tops of the statues of like, you know, Vulcan warriors, things like that. So, yeah, I thought they, they did a, a pretty good job with that scene. They really did. Oh, yeah, and that's something that I didn't even realize until uh, later was they're, they're holding the, the Lerpas, which is the weapon from Amok yeah. time, these statues. So it really makes it more like this is this ancient Vulcan spiritual property. Because in the theatrical cut, first of all, you see moons everywhere <laughs> on Vulcan, even though in the original series they established Vulcan has no moon. And the continuity is all wrong because Spock, like he's in like the sunlight, he's even holding up his eyes to stop the sun from being in his face. And then you cut to the wide shot and it's night and there's no sky <laughs> and there's moons everywhere. And in this one, they, they really do recre- recreate the intention, which is to have like it's a sunny day on Vulcan. We can all agree that that's a, a, a positive change. Uh, for yeah. for the film, but um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as far as other kind of changes go, a lot of the stuff with V'ger, Ken, like, do you miss any of those? The crew is looking at no the screensaver is what I <laughs> kind of referred to it as. No, That's what it looked I, like. No, I don't miss that. I, I I like the 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 pacing, and you know what? It's still it's still not that much shorter, but it's shorter. Uh, and it, it moves a little bit better, and well, scenes have been scenes have been reinserted too, so it's kind of a wash as far as the length. But the, the different scenes they switch out make the pacing better. Seeing you know getting getting moving in this in the in the director's cut is slower, believe it or not, than the motion picture because they add a lot of stuff from the television uh, version. You know, there's more, there's that conversation after Kirk you know goes to find Decker in engineering amongst the the crew. There's um, the extended scene where, you know, when McCoy beams up in the original theatrical version, you know, Kirk just goes to get him and they beam him up. Whereas there's a group that's beamed up first and he's talking to some Anson who can't act worth a damn. (laughs) Oh, she was awful. Something about scrambling our molecules, sir. And then immediately just looks down and walks away. It, it was like that that you know I get what they were trying to do there, but they that should have been on the editing floor. Uh, or when Chekhov gets injured by the electric shock um, from from the um, from the first attack, you know it's in, in the motion picture. He's just immediately, you know, they they call for a medic and there's Chapel there spraying him. There's no scene with Ilea, you know, and the empathic and all that. That that that's not in yeah, there. Yeah, that was random. And so there are things. Yeah, and and again, I mean, those scenes did they really add value? I think when you watch the television version, you're always excited to see new scenes, and I like them. But it impacted the flow, believe it or not. But it, all it did was impact the flow to when it got really slow. So <laughs> it's it is a wash in many ways. So uh, like I said, the ship leaving dry dock, all that other stuff. There was a lot of tidbits and additions there that that slowed them getting underway. And then once they got underway, um, they cut it back. So net net, it's probably roughly the same speed. But don't forget, they did add some scenes with the CGI, and um, and all for the better you know even the the scene after they're on vulcan um you know the shuttle makes two or three passes in front of the screen for the director's cut it isn't just shooting right into starfleet command like it is in the in yeah the there, there's more establishing shots of uh san francisco yeah, yeah in the 23rd century yeah, it was kind of it was cool you know and everything you said was cool about the bigger background and all that stuff so yeah it was neat so uh, you know i i don't i i do like the director's cut and i do think that people that 
didn't like the motion picture as Star Trek fans would appreciate the director's cut a heck of a lot more. Well, well Haley, when you when you finally get to see the director's edition, hopefully in 4K uh, or at least mm-hmm. in HD, uh, it'd be interesting for you because you'll never see a version where there's less things. You'll just get to see more things. Like for me, who grew up watching the special longer version, when I finally saw the um, theatrical version, I was like, whoa, that wasn't in there? That scene wasn't in there? Like I was shocked. Like the, the scene Uhura and Sulu and and uh, the bump head alien with the glowing uh, yellow eyes, who's like the, the one fan of Decker. You know, he's like, hey, man, mm-hmm. Decker's been with this shit for two years. The guy has a good point, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then uh, Uhura's like, our chances of survival just doubled. It's like, okay, well, that's one way to look at it. But I thought that was a good little scene to show, like, hey, whenever you have some, like this guy just come in here and take over the ship, the, the, the other crew members might have something to say about it who don't think Kirk's like the greatest thing in the world, like his, his core group of officers he was on with the five-year mission. So I thought that was a very good moment. A crucial moment, a crucial moment of this film, which helps complete Spock's arc, is uh, when he has that tear that's not in the theatrical version. That blew my mind. They they, they would cut that out uh, because he's like, there comes a time in our life when we all turn to someone, a, a father, a brother, a god, and ask, why am I here? That is like the core of what this movie is supposed to be about, and they and they cut it out, and that's crazy. So for for no other reason than that alone, the director's edition has to be the one you watch. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's an imp- that's a very important scene. Well, I I will look forward to finding it and watching it then. <laughs> yeah, and and you know maybe I I could see too, Zach, possibly just possibly when they're when that scene when they're in sick bay. And Spock is explaining, you know, the difference between, you know, cold being feature being cold, you know, this simple grip, no meaning, no answers, um, you know, and he was laughing before that. Um, so they may have figured, OK, we Spock had his emotional da, 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 maybe check in the box and maybe they felt it was too much. I don't know why they cut it out, but I'm glad they reinserted that scene. Now, Haley, let me ask you this because this is this is an area that that I think it could be some interesting discussion. The scene where they go on to the saucer section and walk over to V'ger. What did you think of that scene in the theatrical cut? You know, visually, it's really interesting. I like the the scale because <laughs> obviously the Enterprise is really big. I like that at least they kept it so it wasn't like, oh, here's these really big people walking on this really even bigger ship in this giant space probe ship thing um so that was really interesting do those those special effects hold up for you they do and they don't um i think if you if you look at it way too critically then you'd be like oh i'm disappointed this is really stupid but in this day and age you know where we we watch these things that had you know, just the very beginnings of CGI and all that stuff compared to now. I, I don't I don't do the whole apples compare apples to oranges with everything that a lot of people do. I appreciate what they had and amazed what they were able to do with what they had at the time. And yeah, it doesn't really hold up to now. Um so I can see that it'll be interesting if they do upgrade it to an H D or four K what they will do as far as a lot of this goes. Yeah, the reason I bring it up is, although it is a little dated, like to me, like the the map painting of the Enterprise is really weird. Like the, the the curve of the saucer is way too angled. Like it looks like a big hump instead of like the the nice natural slope down that that the model has and the ship itself has. And that's a matte painting. And that's like, oh, good, they're gonna upgrade that for the director's edition. And they did. 
But I would argue like it's it's just as dated and weird looking with the with the CGI in the in the 2001 version as that stuff is in 1979. And I always kind of prefer, as you guys have know who've heard me for hundreds of episodes of Standard Orbit, I prefer practical effects. But I don't know, it's it's a wash and and I do hope that if they do revisit this for 4K, they can kind of clean that up even more because I I love pretty much every visual change that the director's edition made. I think everything is a step up above the theatrical cut except for that sequence because it's just it just looks like a like a playstation 2 game <laughs> of the enterprise is floating there when they build it so so ken what are your thoughts on that sequence yeah i like the fact that you actually see the bridge uh, between where voyager is and the enterprise so um all the steps they take on those those objects there Haley, they actually kind of appear yeah, you, you see them being built they, yeah you see it being built, so it, it it creates a bridge to the Enterprise, and it's an improvement when they come off when they when they come when they get on the deck of the ship. Now, when you're looking down in either version, um, at them coming off the ship, it looks fine. It was always that background shot, um, but to me, you know, as much as that, you're right. That slope of the ship and the matte painting and the motion picture was kind of, you know, you kind of cocked your head a little bit the um the beauty and the incredible um set that they built for voyager uh, mitigated that to me so it wasn't like you know okay you know you have to put up with one one small thing here and it was about the only thing in the movie that that seemed dated uh the new version now does look like you said <laughs> Zach, you know it it just doesn't hold up but um yeah i i could see i i would prefer that they leave the director's cut in uh, versus going back to the old, let's say if they if they do remaster it, I think it's it's a better way of doing I, it. I think and I hope that they could upgrade even the effects that they had then because I mean part of the whole conversation here is they're talking they're having these discussions about 4K about HD. Darren Dockerman, all the guys with uh, I believe Foundation uh, Imaging, I believe is their name of them who mm-hmm. who do the special effects. They all have, as far as they claim, they all have the original files. Like all these programmers and designers, they kept everything. Uh, so what you have to do, what you're paying for is a, is an upgrade, computer rendering time. And that takes time. That takes money because that's resources of a studio that they can put towards another movie. Right? I know we think, oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just render it overnight on my computer. Right? It's like it doesn't like in your home that, that works that way for exporting a podcast or something, but not for upgrading special effects. So I don't know, like if in that 4k upgrade of that, you know, new textures, that's basically what they got to do. They got to add new textures, add new information. Cause digitally, like if you try to, it's like playing a VHS or a laser disc on near HGTV, it's going to break down. It's not going to look good. You know, when you blow it up to that, the uh, screen, but if they put these new skins, these new, you know, uh, textures to these models, the CG models that already exist, some of these problems, like in this sequence I'm talking about might be improved. And obviously, they have to upgrade them to put it in 4K. So I'm very excited for that. I hope that that's the case. They can just, you know, bring their hard drives into the studio, plug in what they have, upgrade everything, you know, polish a few things here and there, and plug and play. And I think that's really the only reason why they're even able to talk about this. Because if they had to do everything from scratch, this would not be even on the table. That This was a huge undertaking 20 years ago, and it would be a huge undertaking today. And unfortunately, Paramount doesn't seem that interested in uh, upgrading all their Star Trek movies because, you know, Star Trek 2, again, 4K, director's cut, everybody loves it, it's great. All the other ones have kind of fallen to the wayside. We have them on Blu-ray, 
But I mean, the next gen movies look good because they were kind of more in the CGI, the digital age of you know uh, com- compositing special effects. But you know, I love Star Trek three, right? But but the, the you you see all the matte boxes, the the black lines, you know, especially in HD, those things are drawn. Att- the attention is drawn to those. So if they go back and remaster all these for four K and and recomposite everything from the original elements, which is what they'll need to do. All that stuff, you know, digitally now, except instead of optically the way they did in the seventies and eighties those things will be taken care of and we'll have a much smoother, slicker-looking movie. So hopefully in the process of upgrading to 4K, a lot of these little nitpicks about the special effects will be taken care of. Now, I think it's still great. I mean, I'm still going to I'm gonna hold on to my Director's Edition DVD until the day I die unless we get this <laughs> this 4K version. That's actually the first uh, uh, DVD I ever bought my, for myself because I was a teenager at the time, and the first DVD I ever bought was the Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition, and I put it in my PS2, and I watched both discs, and it was amazing. Um, so it's nostalgia-wise, I would keep it forever anyway, but it's right up there on my shelf with all these other Star Trek uh, movies on Blu-ray. I put I put all the other ones in a, in a drawer. I might give them to, to a library one day because I have all, all those things, all those special features, and all, they've all been duplicated over to the Blu-ray release, but not the motion picture director's edition so i'm gonna hold on to that thing uh, and hopefully it'll have a friend that's in 4k in the near future yeah i think the odds are about five percent that this happens <laughs> oh come on <laughs> oh man why are you gonna kill the dream like that i'm not killing the dream i i, I looked at all those the, the articles and so forth and i saw what they were saying but in absolutely none of them is there a comment from paramount Sources say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They give you links where you can, you can, you know, ask Paramount where you can you know, hashtag this. Um, there's plenty of reasons why it can be done. Okay, so they do it. You know, it, are they going to get their money back? I mean, that's the, that's the struggle with all of this. It isn't just remaking it. It's the packaging, the discs themselves. I have no idea what those things cost. I really don't. And, um, you know, most people stream things. Mm. So, you know, is it yeah. is it really in the cards? I, I don't know. I mean, it's the 40th anniversary. We're going to creation. There's no theme about this, right? There's no theme about the 40th anniversary of, of Star Trek. Now, there's plenty of other things to be celebrating. We got the Picard series. We got below decks you got discovery there's a lot of good new things happening so i mean there's plenty of stuff to celebrate about star trek but there's nothing there's nothing from a nostalgic point of view that's being celebrated but you got the 40th anniversary of star trek the motion picture and like it or not if if that movie wasn't as success as successful as it was none of this would be happening um so there there isn't a lot of love uh, given to this movie by a vast majority of fans and then the general public it's it, it's not like star wars it's not it, it it doesn't cover a base that that's big enough and so i don't mean to be a downer about it i, I just and i would i would be the first one to say i would you know if they said they offered it at a, a you know 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever to get their money back would i pay for that yeah i would because i'm stupid i'm crazy <laughs> I, I love that movie so i would definitely do it uh, is that the right thing to do uh, who knows but i i um i think that yeah, but I th- I think that's that's the struggle they're going to have is saying okay, what's my what's my return on investment, and I don't like I said no, it could be you know creation, you know these guys they don't really pay any attention to the movies probably because it's licensed by CBS and they don't they don't talk about it much. But when you're there, you see things referencing the movies, you see 
scenes in the background from movies they they just don't for whatever reason they they don't they don't play i'm talking you know tos or uh kelvin or tng movies they're they're just not prominent well i think that's the key we need cbs and paramount to to finish that merger right i'm working on it man i'm working on it and then they can make the motion picture director's edition and hd and 4k a cbs all access streaming exclusive right that's right about that yeah um i see ken's the the practicality of this is that you know they they do have to take a look at would this be feasible and i agree that you know this is kind of like a niche kind of film like really unless you're a a big big trekkie you really are probably the general public's not going to be like oh i'm gonna buy that because it says star trek um and so exactly that point of that return on investment how many people would go out and buy this on whatever disc it's put on right um so practically and logically we can say there's a slim chance of this happening but i would agree with ken that i don't know until until somebody higher up says yes we are going to do this i think the likelihood of it happening is pretty small um you know, they've been trying to do that with, with DS9 and, and trying to get that released in, and upgraded. And look how long it took them to do that. You know, the fact that when they redid TNG, it didn't sell as well as they thought it was going to. And so they kind of put a hold on on redoing anything else just because, well, if, if TNG with as popular as it was, you know, those, those remastered Blu-rays and everything didn't sell as well as they had hoped you kind of have to say, mm, maybe nothing else will either. Um, to your point with Creation Ken, you know, it is kind of sad that they they don't celebrate some of this other stuff. And I get that the excitement around everything that's new is great and wonderful and it's awesome. But we still need to recognize what's come before. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this new stuff. Oh, I like hashtag old fans matter. <laughs> and... Um... I'm out here on the periphery, you know. I mean, they just are like, okay, you old timers, you just, you just be gone now. We've got all these cool new shiny shows, and okay, fine. Well, I see how you I, are. I think one of the main reasons that the director's edition happened in the first place was Robert Wise, right? One of the most respected directors in Hollywood history, right? Felt like he didn't get to complete his film, and he didn't, right? They rushed. They had a, a, a date, a release date locked in. They had to meet it, as you said, Ken, earlier. He went to the premiere at the uh, Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian with the, with the film can in his hand and it was still wet. You know, he didn't get to like sit down and have a final cut. You know, this is basically like an assembly cut or rough cut or whatever you want to call it. That's what became a theatrical cut. So when Robert Wise in, in his later years, you know, wants to like redo this movie, Paramount's going to listen to Robert Wise. And so that pushes it through. And that's what makes this one more unique, you know, than like eh, special edition of Phil the Blake movie, ultimate edition, whatever. It's not like studio people putting it together. It was really Robert Wise sitting down, reassembling the film the way he would have wanted it and going back to his original plans for it. I would equate it to something like Blade Runner, which Blade Runner, everybody, everybody, oh, it's one of the greatest science fiction films of all time. Blade Runner is great. Blade Runner 2049 is great, right? But guess what? Blade Runner bombed to the box office. Blade Runner 2049 bombed at the box office, right? But you can buy a Blu-ray set of like four or five different versions of that movie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of like the, the the international cut and the theatrical cut and the work print cut and the final cut. 
And this is the original. You mean or the the new one? No, no, no the, the the original one. The original one. Yeah. So I'm well, saying that like, was it was actually more successful as a VHS and DVD as a yeah. But if it's movie, like right? talk about a niche audience, Blade Runner is a really niche audience. Oh, it is. And yeah, so yeah. this yeah. Star Trek, you know, if this was just one off movie, but this is part of a greater franchise. So they're really like they're really missing a great opportunity to release something like this. It can be done. Warner Brothers found a way to do it with Blade Runner. You see it with other movies all the time as well like you get two or three versions on something so you would think that the biggest star trek movie that started it all would get a little more respect but it just doesn't and hopefully it will maybe not for the 40th but maybe the 50th anniversary of the motion picture i don't know we'll see we'll see i i mean i i i hope so and i'm I'm optimistic by nature but it's just that business side of me now the risk is a lot less um compared to remastering seven years of TNG, but they've got to be gun shy about it. They got to be, you know, because no one expected that to fail. Um, and especially with all the things they added to it. And, and that, that, that was a shame. Um, but you know, that, that is the, I would say it's probably still the most popular series of all the Star Trek Yeah, would have to be TNG, the most beloved. I mean, I mean there's people that prefer DS9, stuff like that, but TNG, you know, what Picard, but you know, to me, it's clear as a bell, right? Yeah. Hashtag Earl Grey should do the new show. That's all I have to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken, uh, final thoughts here. Haley hasn't seen the director's edition. Why should she watch that instead of theatrical? Why don't you sell her on it for us? Oh, it's an easy sell, Haley. It uh, it's it's visually much more appealing. It um, it like I said, the pacing on the second half of the movie goes a, a lot faster. Um, there are a few added scenes which are neat, but I, I think to get the right scale, the right appreciation for what they were trying to do and couldn't get done, it's worth seeing. This, I think, Zach, what, what you outlined was was perfect. This wasn't like Nicholas Meyer coming back in and adding stuff that was chopped to the floor or messing around with Star Trek Six, which he actually made worse yes. um, than the theatrical version. This was giving a a person who was you know who was given a major major motion picture um, the opportunity to come back and do it right, which is which is rare in Hollywood. Um, he doesn't own it. It's not like a Lucas thing, or it's not. This is this is just giving somebody the opportunity to show you the film he would have made. Now, you're not going to like the sound. <laughs> the <audio. laughs> I will warn Badly. you about that. Yes. But you know what? It's not enough to pull you out of it completely. It's just one of those things where it's like, oh, to me, it would have. To me, it was always a great film. Uh, what they added added value. It didn't detract. And if they had kept the sound the same and those effects the same, it would have been the perfect movie. Well, like I said, I I will track it down and I will watch it. No, don't watch until it's four K, Haley. Draw line. <laughs> the line must be drawn here, okay? <laughs> no, because then that would mean I would have to buy a new TV, and I'm not doing that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see what happens. We'll see. The race is on. Star Trek The Motion Picture 4D or Tarantino's very confusing timeline Star Trek <laughs> with Christopher Pine. Very true. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll talk about that news another day. But that, that if you guys haven't been following the Tarantino news, <laughs> he just threw a whole new wrench and a lot more confusion to what his Star Trek uh, 4 may be. And it's 4K, Ken, though, not 4D, by the way. I just wanted to... Was that what I said, 4D? 4D. Although I, I'd pay to see that. Star Trek yeah. picture in 4D. That would be fun. 
Yeah, so maybe that's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole movie is just like you're trapped in a wormhole. Everybody's talking real slow, and we see the streams on their faces. And Anyway. Uh, well, talking about Star Trek, the motion picture director's edition versus the theatrical cut and potentially a 4K upgrade isn't the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. Tilly got a good launch. She had her subplot with, with May, which was the mycelial creation. Yeah. And she didn't come back. I that I just now realized that well, she she went they, away with. She a didn't thought. come back because they they fell into the trap of using her as comic relief, which they do way too much. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. It's very similar to Sarek, you know, first wife, get a divorce, whatever, and then start a new family. That those siblings, and especially with that age gap, is not going to, you know, really remember or consider it a family. Mm -hmm. See, that's it. Amy just ruined canon on this show. Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. Even that song, the way they sing it, I find it hilarious. You, you know, Terry Farrell clearly can't really be bothered to sing a song <laughs> as she's like almost speaking it. Uh, Adrian Brooks, meanwhile, just absolutely goes for it and sings it. Not only does he sing it, but he sings it in this That's very kind yeah. of like, Marine, Marine, one, two, three. One, two, three. You know, three. Kind of like, <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> I mean, like, I know he, like, when he when he does his singing later on in DS9, yeah. he often, he, he does sing, he has a, quite a high voice, given what a big kind of booming guy he is and so on. But the, the, he, like, he doesn't just sing the song, yeah. he kind of commits to, uh, I'm doing a silly nursery rhyme dance He does commit, thing. yeah. The 602 Club. Yeah, it, like that scene on the plane was so meaningful to me dealing with that because it's like Happy is just providing the equipment and saying go and letting Peter fiddle with it to create himself a new suit. But you see that the way that he's working with the computer, it's, you know, that computer screen that's projected into the air like Tony uses. And he's like grabbing things and moving them and zooming in and out and making like, you know, mannerisms and calculations like Tony always did when he was working on something with Jarvis. And you see Happy look at him and smile like a father looking at his son. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm.com and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. 
If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, and Mike Richards. Your contributions, your help, your support, they mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time, or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me... You can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On To Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville, with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Trekkie01D. You can also hear me talking about both Discovery and the Orville over on the Fandom Podcast Network's Discoville podcast that drops every week. So thanks for listening and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>